You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. We're here at the Small Print. I'm Bronwyn Williams, and tonight our guest with us is Tom Goodwin, the founder of All We Have Is Now. So to start with, Tom, please do introduce yourself the way you'd like to be introduced. Sure. I think uh, I would say that my name is Tom Goodwin. I'm a founder of what I hope to be a kind of rogue, renegade um, management and strategy consulting firm that tells people what they should be thinking about and is somewhat optimistic and helps make the world a better place. So it's almost the opposite of what management consultancy currently is. Great. So what, what I've invited you here today or tonight to talk about is really something that I've been observing for quite some time in my work as a trained analyst, this sort of unseparation of church, brand and state. And that's why we've got someone like you who comes from a management and a marketing kind of consulting background rather than someone from the policy sphere like we normally speak to. So I think this is quite an interesting movement in society where we've got brands and businesses effectively acting as sort of arbiters of justice and social justice, acting as judge, jury, and in some cases, executionists actually meeting out punishments through things like corporate denial of service. What happened, as we saw last year, with some of the big social media platforms banning certain political figures and even whole businesses that have been banned by ISPs for sort of breaching issues that are not quite within the law, but they effectively acting as though they are distributors of the law, which is quite a big shift. And for me, quite surprising as someone who has worked also consulting to brands and businesses who are thought to be essentially sort of profit driven, right? And if you are profit driven, why would you be wanting to stick your neck out and take a stand on a controversial issue that you could end up alienating what is all too often around about 50% of the population? Because if we think about the most controversial issues, big issues that have come across from society, whether you're talking about the sort of Trump election or you're talking about Brexit, they were quite close votes. By taking a side on any of those issues, you're essentially cutting yourself off from perhaps potentially half the customers you could have had. So that's something that surprises me quite a lot, but it also scares me because of the power some of these businesses now have to influence society essentially outside of the law. And there's another issue that comes through there too, which is also a little bit concerning when we start to see big business kind of getting into bed with government too. So actually sort of picking and choosing which governments to support. And we can unpack some of those ideas a bit more, but maybe if you've got some comments on what I've said, if you agree with those observations, or if you have a different take on what's going on with that unseparation of church brand and state right now. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to discuss here. I mean, the first thing is, I think those two things are very different. Um, one is quite a new phenomenon and something that we're yet to really see play out. Um, and the other is more in the world of sort of corporate lobbying and, uh, you know, ways to lubricate the machinery of policy, um, which is not in any way new, but it's also something I know nothing about. So I won't comment on that. Um, I think it would be very, very easy at this moment in time to think that we were at a representative point in the world. It would be easy to think that somehow the last year, year and a half, two years um, has been instrumental in how the future will play out. Um, it's also very easy to assume that a lot of this is malicious and a lot of this is driven by people who know everything and have made extremely wise decisions to do certain things. And I don't think that's the case. I mean, that, that doesn't mean I'm not concerned by it. It doesn't mean that what you say isn't true. Um, I just think this has all happened so quickly. Um, it's been so unexpected. I mean, it should have been expected, but for some reason it's been unexpected. And I think quite a lot of well-intentioned people are just making fairly bad decisions or they're just letting decisions happen organically and deciding not to change things. And what we kind of see is, is a creep in a way. I mean, we kind of see companies and brands that three years ago um, would have been fairly quiet on these things and they would have been fairly defensive. And somehow we've whipped ourselves up into a frenzy where it's not just the case that these companies are given a microphone and asked the question, it's that these companies are expected to have an answer because in not providing a statement, they're deemed to be sort of complicit in something. Um, and I think one needs to take a bit of a step back from this. I mean, I think we've seen what happened with Trader Joe's when they were accused of um, so some form of sort of racial insensitivity through the labeling of their products. And they, I can't remember if they said nothing or if they said something which was quite flippant in return, 
but it seemed very much the case that, that things were fine when they behaved that way. Um, so in a strange way, and I don't want to sort of take energy out of this conversation, I, I kind of feel that we would be wrong to judge the world right now. We need to wait for an environment where people are going back into offices, having proper conversations face to face. Um, we should be aware that the election cycle has moved on. Um, so this need for fury and this need to hate other people and this need for kind of brands that belong to those conversations has been reduced. Um, so I personally welcome a far more calm and um, sort of cautious and slightly more generous spirited form of conversation. And these are things I talk about quite a lot with people in the world around me. I myself come from quite a left wing background. As it happens this year, I've ended up talking to quite a lot of people on the right wing. Um, and I've realized this will either get a lot worse quite quickly um, or it will slowly get a lot better. Um, and I kind of expect it to happen um, along the path of the latter. Well, I find it interesting what you said there, because I'd probably slightly disagree that these trends are things that are unique to the year 2020 and all the chaos that happened there. I think that the trends towards things like cause-based marketing and morality marketing or brand wagoning, as I like to say, sort of brands yeah. attaching themselves to, to issues, particularly social issues as opposed to political issues, is something that's been happening for a good few years. Yes, it's been accelerated by you know, most of the world being stuck at home behind their computer screens with a lot of time to air their opinions on social networks. But the choices brands were making is something that I think has been happening for some time. And it's been happening for some time, but also not necessarily to the benefit of the brands that have decided to do that. And I did think that listening to your comments that you didn't say it, but it does, it does seem that there's a subtext of fear, almost anticipatory fear that people are so afraid of being caught on the wrong side of the zeitgeist. You have to really stake your claim onto whatever hashtag is trending at the moment. You can't afford to be left behind. You know, when the Me Too movement came out, that had nothing to do with what happened in 2020, but it was still something that corporates felt they had to speak out about, which was quite extraordinary and not just speak out about. We also seen cases of brands actually sort of leading the conversation when it comes to social issues, even before the news media picks up on it, which is quite interesting. So this whole sort of like preempted defense against potential attacks from not necessarily from activist consumers, but also from activist non-consumers. So sort of this living in a, in a culture of fear that, that someone is going to decide to create basically a targeted attack on your company because we're always kind of looking for another scapegoat and no business wants to be that scapegoat. Would you agree with that? Or, or are you yeah. also coming in from a slightly different angle? The vital distinction I think is between efforts that are proactive and efforts that are reactive. So I think it's absolutely been the case that for the last 10 years, this notion of purpose-driven marketing um, has moved on from rather than having to have a brand that stands for something and having a reason for a company to exist and having a sort of a brand onion that most people in marketing would happily put together. It's now assumed that brands should stand for something that's good and that their purpose has to be something that's sort of lofty and green. And I think what concerns me is that quite a lot of those conversations are rather stupid um, and quite a lot of them are very disingenuous and quite a lot of companies are actually extremely evil um, are getting passed off as companies that do social good because they have a good PR campaign behind them. Quite a lot of companies that are not especially evil somehow fit into our minds as being the sort of bastions of evil. So a company like Monsanto immediately sort of jumps out at me that probably um, is no worse or no better than a fairly typical um, sort of marauding multinational company that's trying to grow a user base. Um, so the, the, the sort of broad fundamental strategy that underpins this stuff hasn't changed that much in that regard. What has happened is in this era of 24 hour news cycles and the immediacy of Twitter, um, I think companies first realized that they had to be ready to respond to crises that happen. So whatever happens in the world, somehow um, companies think that they need to have an opinion on everything and they need to nail their colors to a mast and they need to support it. And I think it's been in the interest of uh, technology platform owners, it's been in the interest of um, PR people, and it's been in the interest of media publishers to create a situation where silence is being complicit and where whatever you say has to be on one side or the other. 
but I do think that's a temporary thing. Um, you mentioned even more proactively this idea that companies should almost preempt the stories that may be big and preempt the fact that, you know, the Me Too movement will mean that your board of directors has to have a certain percent of people from diverse backgrounds and a certain percent of people from um, different other ways to segment the population, be it gender or um, how they associate themselves. And I think, um, you know, in a, in a way, it's not a bad thing that companies are being more thoughtful about this. Um, I'm concerned with the superficiality of their approach towards this, because it is about photo shoots and it is about defensiveness. And actually, I personally believe that diverse teams are brilliant and that people from all sorts of backgrounds should be working together. But you should just be doing that because it's a clearly a better way to work rather than because you're worried that someone will take a photograph of the board meeting and it'll blow up and, and look bad or something. So, yeah, it's the, it's the disingenuousness and it's the stupidity of these conversations that kind of bothers me. So. Yeah, exactly. It's quite a big difference between a virtue signal, which is effectively costless because it's attaching yourself to someone, that, something that someone else has had to bleed or suffer or work hard to, yeah. to bring to the limelight versus being virtuous, which tends to have a cost. That's when you're making choices based on morals rather than being based on profits. So there's That's quite a, quite a big distinction. Well. Like we've entered an environment where you can do things that have no cost to your reputation that are perceived to be the right things to do. And actually all of the energy about the conversation rather than getting moved into understanding the topic more and listening to each other more and creating a more robust and sensible plan for the future that actually resolves the problems it means that all of the energy ends up with virtue signaling and gestures and things that actually in the current climate appear to be quite supportive of the endeavor that is quote-unquote good um, but actually is rather of a distraction. I mean, the whole thing reminds me a bit of, of paper straws. I'm not sure in South Africa if you've been, um, had sort of paper straws unleashed on you. Um, yes, but paper yes. straws are quite clearly not in any way significantly detrimental to the quality of our lives. You know, no one's in um, counselling at the moment because paper straws have been such an um, abhorrent addition to their life. But at the same time, they're a little bit annoying and they have really not accomplished anything whatsoever. And they are based on fundamentally incorrect maths. And for me, a lot of this is a bit like paper straws. And people can either look at paper straws and go, well, this is great. You know, it's a nice step in the right direction. You know, after paper straws, we're going to have, you know, some airlines will fly on biofuels for 10% of their time. And then that creates a sort of snowball effect. But I tend to think it's the opposite, where it ends up giving credibility to people who criticize these movements and it ends up just annoying people. And it ends up just being rather illogical and stupid where people think they've done something good for the planet just because they had a gin and tonic with a paper straw in it. So, Yeah, it's a, it's a sort of a, a work washing of what's going on rather than yeah. changing the actual fundamentals. It's just too cheap. It's just too easy. So there's a bit of cynicism that comes in there exactly, which, as you say, does undermine the, the good work that people really are doing in the space. And that's, of course, the other danger that we become too cynical about people that are pushing for progressive change because of the, the less ingenuous people that attach themselves to those causes. And I think that's also quite dangerous for destabilizing society. And again, perhaps another reason why there should be some more separation between morality and politics and business. I think it's also an issue that perhaps we can touch on with trying to make businesses the arbiters of morality. When we have these, say, sort of like AI ethics initiatives that are coming into organizations and somehow expecting big, big corporations to set the moral tone for society. And that's obviously hugely flawed because why would you want to hand over setting the moral tone of society to an entity that is clearly driven by profit? We shouldn't be expecting amoral institutions to guide morality for everyone else. I mean, we, we can, but that would be just hugely naive. And we've seen a few interesting case studies there where people who have had that strange belief that somehow big organizations will take the moral leave have been hugely disappointed when that hasn't actually panned out. But we shouldn't be surprised about that. We have to understand that there's very different incentives in play there. And leaving it in that point just really damages everybody's brand and wastes a whole lot of people's time. I don't know if you have a comment on that. It's a slightly different issue, but it is kind of related. I'm fascinated with where this came from. 
you know, like I don't think there was a consumer need. You know, I don't think that three years ago people were in the supermarket choosing dishwasher tablets and they were thinking, you know, where does Finnish dishwasher tablets stand on human trafficking? Like what's Finnish uh, dishwasher tablets beliefs on immigration? Or what do they think about investing in uh, the, the space force? I think most people were there thinking, I think this one gets my dishes clean and I think the packaging looks nice and maybe it's on special offer. So I don't, I don't think it really came from people. Um, you know, it, it's obviously useful to be in a world where we are supporting companies that are more helpful for the population. You know, there are clearly some companies like Amazon that are perhaps more uh, problematic to people and causing great destruction to many aspects of society. And no one really seems to care about that because they're quite easy to use and they're a bit cheaper. So most of this um, conversation is based on a complete lack of any logical framework beneath it. Um, I, I mean, again, I, th this may sound dismissive and this may sound naive or, or, or rather sort of um, offensive, but I think a lot of people just don't have that much to do in their jobs. And I think people get distracted by the hot buttons and people have huge teams of people and people like the idea of being a bit of a sort of savior. Um, and I think a lot of well-intentioned people are probably spending too much time doing things which are um, busy work and that appears to be the right thing to do. Uh, and one hopes that that stops. One hopes that we stop this commissioning of data that shows that people buy purpose-driven brands because they really don't. Um, let's stop this sort of tirade of data about how people do make decisions based on the policies that the company support because they don't. Um, and let's try and save this for the stuff that really matters. I mean, you know, there's a city like Flint in Michigan where there is still quite poisonous water for a very um, unprivileged population, like, that's probably quite a good thing for Coca-Cola to get behind. You know, like, there are real places where these companies can stand for things. Um, and one would hope that we can sort of move towards things which are less gestural in nature and actually much more about making the world genuinely better. Um, because these things can work together. I mean, all these, all these forces, you know, like being purpose-driven and being helpful to the planet isn't antithetical to making money, but it has to be done in a fairly sensible way. And I'm extremely worried that people who are prone to cynicism, um, who are reasonable, rational, intelligent, thoughtful people, I think it's that population that we're starting to miss with quite a lot of these population, with, with quite a lot of these discussions. So. Yeah, so have you seen any good examples of corporate social responsibility initiatives that have not been cynical? Are there, are there any good case studies? Because most of the ones that, that do come top of mind do tend to be somewhat on the, the sort of the, the, the hugely visual sort of campaigns that fit very nicely onto social media, but don't necessarily do too much to actually change society. Yeah, I think um, it's hard to know because by definition, if you hear about it, that means it was publicized. And if it was publicized, then immediately you have a slight feeling that maybe some of the energy went into making the, the case study video rather than helping people. Um, I do remember, you know, when the hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, you know, a company like P&G sent in huge numbers of washing machines to help people wash their clothes, um, which may seem like a rather first world problem at a time like that. But I'm sort of led to believe that was actually quite helpful. Um, I mean, in a weird way, to some extent, the moment you record something that's altruistic, you like immediately... Um, sort of one thinks that maybe there's something else going on. Um, I think I'm generous spirited and I'd like to believe there are people that are genuinely doing good for the world. Um, but, you know, by me giving examples, um, I might not be giving them the, the sort of fair credit they're, they're owed. Yeah, sure. Maybe we can move on to a slightly different uh, question here. And that is, obviously, politics and advertising have a, have a lot in common, at least in the modern era. I mean, we can all trace a lot of the persuasion and propaganda on the one hand, and also the success and rise of the advertising industry on the other hand, back to old Edward Bernays and what's gone on there. And I wonder what your comments are on that, particularly what's happened over the last couple of years of, of how advertising talent has been used to perhaps nudge narratives in certain ways for better or for worse and what your views are and how close the whole worlds of advertising and propaganda have become or or not in recent recent years 
I mean, the world of advertising and the world of politics um, are incredibly similar. Um, and I mean, they're both about understanding people, understanding their motivations, and then using acts of communications to change people's beliefs or behaviors. Um, so they really are identical. I think both areas have actually suffered under the modern regime of data um, because we are now able to see how people are responding to what we say in real time. And I think. I come to this loving politics and loving policy and loving discussions about how to help improve the world for as many people as possible in a way that doesn't cause damage to those who are perhaps more successful. Um, and I am aware that we've gone from sort of vision-based politics to almost politics as research groups. Um, you know, there are many, many politicians that we can mention over the years who've been extremely strong um, charismatic leaders and they've done many things that were wonderful and they've done some things that many people found problematic but they normally had a sort of belief system that was consistent you know they normally had a personality which allowed you to almost figure out what their policies would be on those things and I think now we've sort of entered an age where we really are talking to marketers you know we're talking to people who the most important thing is that they retain power um, because power grabs happen on a cadence of three, four or five years, that means that no policies can be put into place that will have an impact that happens over a longer period of time. Um, it means how people can distort what they say or their intentions is actually much more important um, than what good it can accomplish. It means that the whole thing becomes very risk averse. Um, and I worry that we have a generation of people that are going into politics because they want power more than because they want to make a difference. Um, so I'm, I'm quite sort of concerned about this. I'm not quite sure what happens. Um, like so much policy is now leaked to the press ahead of time um, with the goal being how can we look at how the papers respond to this or how can we look at how social media responds to this. And we're almost getting policy as a sort of A-B test, I think. So. Yeah, that's, a, that's not a particularly cheerful view on the future. But generally, yes, government is tending to be bigger and to become more bureaucratic. So it's not even a case of thinking about this in terms of like being a, some sort of a conspiracy coming down from, from above. But eventually you get to a, a stage, much like you do in the corporate world too, where you've got so many layers of bureaucracy, the bureaucracy becomes self-reinforcing and self-sustaining. So you've got a system that's designed for power for power's sake, but not for any individual's sort of actual drive or desire or demand. And that's a very banal dystopia, but also quite a scary one because it's very hard to break. I mean, a bureaucracy can sort of bumble along with its head cut off for a very long time before it collapses and can do a lot of damage in that time. And it also doesn't have any natural antibodies to stop its own growth. Bureaucracies breed bureaucracies. That's, that's how they work. And that's something that I definitely see as being a problem that's sort of strangling growth and real progress and stealing hope from a lot of people's futures, but at the same time, making a whole lot of work in the present to keep everybody busy and everybody kind of distracted. So then, so no one's really able to, to fight the system. And how do you fight a system that doesn't have a single populist leader at the top because you know Trump was perhaps one of those but at the moment you know across the world it seems to be quite a large leadership vacuum going on we're essentially being led by a bureaucratic machine not by any individual points of view that's that's my own personal opinion as to sort of where we tending it's not a complete holistic view of global geopolitics but i think i think it is an interesting point to ponder when we try and think what really went wrong last year, because I think a lot of things have gone wrong with a lot of the narratives and stories that have been told about the COVID crisis and how we have dealt with it. And I think there's many actors that can be to blame there, from the media to advertisers and brands and how they've got involved in the conversation and to politicians. My own perspective is that a lot of the leadership across the world has sort of been led by media narratives popping up from social media rather than leading the conversation. So essentially we had like a leaderless world going on and then essentially we started being led by memes and messages that were coming not necessarily from the best places. And that, of course, feeds into cycles of fear and distrust, which is very, very destructive for society. Do you have a comment on that on a general perspective as to how our stories went so badly wrong and where the flows of communication broke down? 
Yeah, I think for me, a key moment will be when we should really understand what happens. And blame is less interesting to me. Um, many people who have views on this tend to err on the side of conspiracy, uh, err on the side, uh, you know, whether it's the United Nations or the World Economic Forum or China or whatever. But there's something really malicious going on behind the scenes. I tend to just think it's a series of people who had good intentions that completely um, aligned with a system that has caused um, quite a lot of damage, but I don't think they did so with bad intentions, you know. Um, and I think therefore we need to go through this process in a way which is not full of anger and sort of vigor and is full with sort of compassion um, and patience. And there will be a whole series of um, situations which um, are quite different in nature. So it's somewhat problematic the way that people have used this to enrich themselves and to um, procure contracts which were somewhat based on nepotism. So that's obviously a thing to look at. Um, but I think we also need to recognize that this was the first thing ever of this nature to happen in a media climate which has incentives which are completely aligned against the interests of us. Um, and I think we need to recognize that what really happened was that everyone um, was sort of cajoled into the same um, sort of flow where it was in the interest of politicians to be seen as strong leaders. It was in the interest of politicians to ensure that they were seen to be doing everything they could. Um, it was in the interest of the media to get more clicks with stories that create fear and anxiety because that's just how our bodies are wired. Um, and to some extent, it was in our interest as people to be um, anxious and to be seen to be doing good by showing how seriously we were taking it and broadcasting the steps that we were going through um, to minimize the risk to others. I mean, in a very, very odd way, um, there could almost be no drama that could ever be written at this moment in time in the world that put pressure on so many sort of perfect topics. You know, if you sat down four years ago and said, I'm gonna create a film all about drama of, of the 2020s, you'd say, well, it's probably gonna to have to have China in it. Um, it's probably gonna be something to do with censorship. It's probably gonna be something to do with algorithms. It's probably gonna be something to do with populism. It's gonna be something to do with anti-science. It's gonna to be to do with conspiracy theories. It's gonna weigh in on the battles between generations. Ideally, there should be something invisible about it because that's even more scary. And of course, none of this is me saying it's in any way been written or made up. I just mean there was a bizarrely um, like awful and tragic um, sort of rhyme to this where it was able to touch upon all those things. Um, and therefore, I think in many ways, the sort of catastrophe that's being caused um, is something that we need to learn lots from. But I think it's the central dynamic. I think it's the way that we are designed to be scared. And it's the way that people can make more money by being scary. And it's a political system that favors things that happen that are seen to be done. I mean, again, the act of saying things happen, you know, by doing this, we will cause more harm than good, but that harm will happen on another politician's watch. And that harm will happen in ways that we can't necessarily tie back to this moment in time. You know, that takes the type of leader that realistically, it seems that we don't have. Um, so in a way, this was a sort of very modern um, sort of case study, really, in how these systems can go wrong. And that doesn't mean that there were evil people. That doesn't mean that everyone was making bad decisions. It just means that we were incentivized in ways that were detrimental in many ways. Yeah, I tend to agree there. I think the meme media feedback loops are obviously so enormous with the globally mm. connected markets. So you end up having homogenous ideas distributed across the whole world. So we have one size fits all solutions for very, very different communities, very, very different nations with very, very different effects in terms of their efficacy. Because obviously, you know, different societies respond to different treatments quite, quite differently in the real world. And I, I do speak obviously from a South African perspective where we've got very different social dynamics, very different living conditions to say uh, Switzerland or Denmark or, a, or New Zealand, for example. So trying to apply the same sort of policies does not necessarily result in us getting the same results. But I think what was very interesting for me from a social commentary perspective is how 
the populations in general responded and demanded the same sort of treatments as everyone else in the world. I think it was quite frightening for me how everyone sort of leant towards the same message and was even tweeting the same messages, people from across the world, like coming up with the same memes and the same phrases to talk about their personal experience. I think that's quite interesting to see how deeply memes can embed into our society for better or for worse, but just the, the complete sort of copy paste kind of rhetoric and patterns that played out. I think a lot of what happened in terms of policy response, as you did mention, it's like never attributes to conspiracy what you can attribute to incompetence or just a sort of general panic station mm. was due to demands coming from populations. It wasn't necessarily imposed upon people. I'm pretty sure history books will try and turn that one around. But definitely mm. many, many people, most people were very, very supportive of whatever was being prescribed and were very, very eager to adopt consensus messages. But I think mm -hmm. from a social perspective, that kind of leads us to, to a different problem. So we started off speaking about corporations that were attaching themselves to sort of low cost issues, adopting hashtags and colors and whatever, whatever sort of imagery was sort of required of the, the cause du jour to, to help bolster their brands. But there's also the other sort of subtext of this sort of phenomenon of people falling in line, that so-called sort of social cooling, where everyone kind of repeats the same messages and that Overton window really, really shuts to a point where everyone is kind of thinking and speaking the same, even if they don't necessarily believe the same. And that was also quite concerning for me because the sort of messages, people that I knew, acquaintances that I both worked with and personal like relationships that I'd had, the messages they were putting onto their social media feeds were not the messages they were telling me when we had private phone conversations or when we met in person. And that's hugely disturbing to me that everyone is parroting messages and pretending to believe in a particular consensus when they really don't. And there's a huge irony to that because if everyone is pretending to support something that nobody believes in, why are we all supporting it? It's almost like a case of we're not being honest even with, with our sort of close friends and acquaintances in public because there's a sort of sense of general fear that things can go wrong. So mm. I don't know if you have a comment on that because I know that you have been in the past on the receiving end of some of the, the stepping out of that particular Overton window, but you don't have to go down that road if you don't want to. But maybe you've got a comment on the general sort of social cooling and frosting of, of the, the hard edges of, of the diversity of opinions that we really should have as successful, thriving communities. Yeah, um, it's quite hard for me to express my thoughts in many ways here. Um, I mean, one is this is a known dynamic, apparently. So it's uh, there's something called the Abilene paradox, which is where groups of people will basically make decisions not based on what they think is appropriate, but what they think other people will think is appropriate. Um, so apparently it's a thing. So, you know, we're not, Keynes's we're not, beauty we're not, contest, similar yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So we're not sort of crazy for thinking this might have happened. Um, I think I have learned how much I don't understand the world in the last year and a half. Um, and in a way, as every day goes on, I realize more and more that I don't really understand this stuff. Um, you know, I can understand um, what happens when people decide to read certain pieces and they get one side of the story. And I can see why people have views that are different because of that. Like I understand the filter bubble. Um, I understand people's need for simplicity and the fact that, you know, believing two ideas at the same time is quite uncomfortable for people. Um, I understand people's need to sort of belong to a tribe and to fit in. Um, so I understand why people sort of behave in a way which is alike people like them. But I think the bit that I don't really understand is people who you know of as quite proud and thoughtful people. Um, who you presume to have quite strong principles and who are quite happy to have that level of sort of disconnect between their actual beliefs and how they appear. Um, I'm surprised that those people are not silent. I mean, if, if, I, if I was someone that was uncomfortable with expressing my point of view on something, um, which unfortunately is not a characteristic I have, um, then it would seem logical to just not join in um, to just not say anything, to, to use your kind of silence as a way to ensure that momentum behind these things doesn't grow. So I've been, I've been very confused. Um, 
and you know when I was um, you know when it became clear that I should leave publicists and I was sort of asked to leave in public the contrast between people who both had joined in on the Twitter debate and sort of you know added their opinions and sort of piled in and sort of joined the proverbial punch up um, against me who were then sort of writing DM saying you know uh, I actually I believe in you know in your side um, that was just something I didn't really understand it doesn't make me angry um, I'm not in any way a victim of this stuff um, I'm sort of lucky to have um, a situation where people are interested in what I've got to say sometimes um, but it's very confusing like that's not that's not wiring that I can really understand myself and I think when you do a job like mine where it's your job to really understand people and how they operate it's um, it's quite disconcerting to realize the degree to which people um, feel this very strong need to not challenge things and to um, almost live their life like a brand actually. I mean, in a way we're almost sort of going full circle where we're kind of expecting brands to behave like people, you know? So we're expecting my um, shoe polish company, you know, to like the color blue and to enjoy lasagna and to, you know, think that, um, you know, border control should be changed. You know, we're, we're kind of expecting our, our shoe polish brand to think that way. And at the same time, we're starting to see people act with Instagram as an editorial calendar and where they're promoting, um, you know, happy Mother's Day because the calendar tells them it's a good day to wish happy birthday to their mom and they should probably tell the world at the same time to show how thoughtful they are. Um, and I think in a way what we really have is the fact that people are really lost. I mean, sorry if I'm sort of taking this on to another area, but I think technology has come into our lives very quickly. I think we don't really know um, what we're supposed to do with it. I think we now have more abundance than we realize. Um, it's quite a, a sort of distasteful thing to say. And you know, I'm aware in the geography that you're in, it's certainly not as apparent as in a place like Miami, but generally speaking, we have way too much stuff. Um, generally speaking, we don't have enough problems. Um, generally speaking, that means there is this sort of need to do things to try and create a sense of identity. And I think we're really struggling with many of these things. We're struggling with what is it to be a man in 2021? What is it to be a woman? Um, what does a career look like? What does security look like? What does happiness look like? What does success look like? And I think um, it's that sort of vacuum at a time when religion has obviously been removed from many people's lives um, and where struggle has. I think it's that that we're kind of facing at the moment. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think that we also sort of encouraged to celebrate sort of aesthetic diversity, but we also encouraged or discouraged to support any form of opinion diversity so there's almost like it's it's a very strange point in history where we're trying to reconcile these two different ideas and come up with a new social consensus which just doesn't gel naturally with people so you do end up with this world where when it comes to like that whole sort of social cooling phenomenon you've kind of got two issues the lies of omission where people sort of stay silent and just sort of fall in line with whatever the status quo is and what you're talking about there like lies of commission where people will literally say something they don't believe because they're afraid they're going to get in trouble for not saying it and that for me is even more scary that's that's a different sort of step it's a different line in the sand that's being drawn it's one thing being afraid to speak your actual mind to actually say what you really believe but I think society has always had that. There's always been a sort of degree that if we are to fit in with society, we all have to smooth the edges of the more extreme points of our personality and our more extreme views. That's how we can get along. So there's sort of a, there's a, there's a reason for that, definitely evolutionary speaking. But I think it's quite a different point when we get to a point in society where people are forced to do things and to signal support for certain causes or to signal hate against certain individuals in order to remain part of the tribe. That is much more dangerous from a social perspective because that's when you get into mob-based cycles. That's when you start tipping into, at the extreme end, physical violence, which we're starting to see across the world. I mean, this is not like violent protests is something that we quite familiar with where I come from, but I'm not familiar with seeing that degree of violent protests happening in other places of the world, which is, which is, which is concerning for me. And I think a lot of the, those sort of tensions do bubble up from trying to live these, these double lives, which have to sort of constantly wear a social mask or live with the threats of losing your social credit, whether that social credit is implicit or explicit in terms of like just your blue check on Twitter and your general popularity. 
or in more extreme cases, social credit that's literally tied to a quantitative score that is limiting your access to real world goods, services, rights, and privileges. So yeah, that's we are seeming to, to head into quite dangerous waters there. And I think that the overall sort of thread that's coming through here is this sort of pervasive feeling of, of fear of people not being bold enough and being afraid to speak what they really believe and speak to be afraid to go against prevailing views. And, and that's quite destructive, particularly when those prevailing views do tend to come from the more extreme edges, ironically, again, of society, the whole sort of phenomenon of the tyranny of the minority and the fact that minority viewpoints, and I'm not talking about sort of demographic minorities, but people that have extreme views, like say, extreme vegans that don't believe you should be able to eat any sort of animal products, are more extreme in those views, also more totalitarian about them when it comes to their own lives. They'll refuse to eat off a menu that serves meat, whereas a meat eater or a pescatarian would eat a vegetarian dish. So you kind of get this sort of slow creep through society where the more tolerant is sort of taken over by, by the less tolerant. And that's got one dynamic when it plays out in the private sector, it becomes quite a different dynamic when those minority viewpoints that the majority don't believe in, but also don't disbelieve in enough to sort of dispute to vocally end up becoming policy. And we end up with a vastly constrained society. So I don't know if you'd agree with that trend or if you've got a comment to add there. No, I, I definitely agree with the trend. Um, I mean, oddly, I think about eight years ago, I wrote a piece about this. I don't think I used the word filter bubble, but it was very, very clear that the algorithms that created social media were only ever interested in moving people away from the center. Um, and that hasn't changed. So whatever conversation you have, you know, most people start out life somewhat on this kind of threshold between the two sides. And it's a bit like a sort of drainage basin really, where depending on where the raindrop falls on one side or another, um, it's sort of swept into a sort of ocean that's miles away from each other. Um, so we need to sort of recognize that all of the current forces in the digital media world are such that it's assuming that we prefer to have conversations with people like us, which sadly is true. Um, and it assumes that the way to get people to really get along is to actually move together um, towards a side where, things seem, side where things seem to be more simple. Um, so these algorithms have been designed to sort of whip people up into a frenzy, to make them intransigent and to think that anyone that's in the middle um, is almost like an enemy to them. And therefore, someone like me, who I'd like to think I'm quite reasonable and I'm quite sort of generous spirited and I'm quite thoughtful, you know, you end up being sort of attacked by all sides. You know, there, there are certain sort of conversations that mean that everyone starts to sort of hate you because you're able to see both, both sides of it. So it's absolutely the case um, that these algorithms are causing this. It's absolutely the case that it's a huge problem. Um, the good news is it's very clear to see at the moment. Um, you know, I don't think anyone could reasonably um, argue against this. Um, I also think that the solutions are also probably found in software. Um, you know, any, any moment that we start paying for media with money rather than our outrage or attention will be a moment where the algorithms can be um, created in such a way where they're trying to find uh, sort of commonality. I mean, the, the other huge problem they had was that the moment the nature of the internet changed, then news organizations started changing the way that they reported and changing what they reported on in order to fit into the media environment where people like things that are easy to understand. They like things that are making it clear that there is a right answer and they like things that sort of tell them that they were correct to think what they always thought before. Um, so I think all of this stuff can change. I mean, we should also be aware that um, both you and I, Bromin, spend way too much time on Twitter and on the internet. And if you get into the real world, and I don't mean this, it almost sounds quite patronizing, but I, I really don't mean it to. Um, you know, if you do go into the real world and both of us have not been able to do that enough, you know, you realize that most of the world is not on the edge of civil war. Um, most of the world is not full of people who are incredibly angry about stem cell research or completely appalled about, um, you know, even things like border control or terrorism. You know, I spent quite a lot of the summer in a very rural part of Georgia and South Carolina. I actually went to a huge um, sort of town fair 
um, to work on a cake stand the day after um, it appeared that Trump had lost, lost the election. And I spent the entire day walking around and listening to how people greeted each other. And this was the day after the election. It was an extremely Republican area. It was a very rural area. And these people had not seen each other for about a year. So one would have expected the entire conversation to be, oh my God, what a year, what a day. Last night was terrible. What on earth are we going to do? You know, you'd, you'd kind of expect there to be sort of, you know, the army would be coming together if there was going to be a civil war in places like this. And nobody cared. Um, it was absolutely staggering to me. I didn't hear a single conversation where this was mentioned. I don't think that people were censoring themselves. Um, I just think in reality, most people are worried about how much food they've got. They're worried if, you know, their purchase of a truck is going to go through. They're worried about their credit score. Um, and again, I don't mean this in a sort of patronizing way, but we should be aware that there is, in the same way that there is a silent majority, there's also a sort of silent apathy. Um, and that actually could be quite helpful in these cases. Yeah, so no, the silent apathy could go either way, because I don't know where, where you live or what passports you hold and where you vote, but we definitely have a problem with a completely disenfranchised, like literally, you oh, just not interested yeah. in engaging with anything, which is, which is a different problem again, because again, then the, the squeakiest wheel gets to win, which is, which is also hugely like to win at the polls, to win in real life, you know, and that's, that is, that is a challenge. So how do, you, how do you sort of bridge both of those divides? I also wanted to pick up on what you were saying about when, if we can get back to sort of paying for media, we can solve a lot of these sort of siloing and extreme acceleration problems. I'm not convinced that's going to happen though, because again, I do come from a country where the vast majority of people will not be able to pay for your Substack subscription or for your premium newspaper. And then you end up with just a case where you've got your sort of your elite readers that live behind an essentially a sort of the digital equivalence of a gated community and everyone else is left behind. So you almost have all your free information will still be there, but it will be even lower quality. It will be even more extreme and all those sort of things just perpetuates even more. So I'm not convinced anymore. I know I have had these conversations with a lot of friends and professionals in the industry about how putting pay gates back onto media will fix it. But that cart's already bolted by rebolting the gates. I mean, it's, isn't it a little bit late now to try and what sort of cows are you going to be able to re-corral into, into that enclosure? I'm not convinced. Not a very nice way to talk about people. Um, I mean, here's the deal. The, the annoying thing about me is that I tend to take a step back away from everything. And I tend to look at things um, both from a distance, but also from a sort of historical context. Um, and that means I'm not very pragmatic, but it does mean that you can create a sort of framework to see this stuff. Um, I mean, broadly speaking, everything that we have is stuff that we could have reasonably predicted. Um, you know, it's not, we're not in some era that nobody in science fiction ever thought was going to happen. We're actually kind of at the center of it. And um, I think a lot about a campaign that was done on TV around about 2004, 2005 in the UK, maybe it was global, it was the AOL, so American Online. And they ran a series of ads, one saying the internet was a good thing, one saying the internet was a bad thing. And this was just in the sort of formative stages of society and technology together. And the one about it being a good thing was obviously full of wonderful things, the sort of death of ignorance, you know, connections, you know, gay people in small villages, finding other gay people around the world and feeling together. And it was, it was full of all these very real benefits, most of which we have seen. Um, and then the one about all the bad things was to do with terrorism and cybersecurity and bullying and stuff. And again, not everything bad has happened, but many of them have. But everything that we've seen happen has been part of the same ecosystem in a way. It's, it really has been a sort of vicious circle where, you know, the fact that people feel um, that no politician stands for them means that you get populist leaders and because you get populist leaders lots of people sort of think it's superficial lots of people think it's not really representing them so then they become disenfranchised you know because editors don't think that people care that much about politics then they either give away crap sort of news for cheap or they charge a lot of money for a more highbrow audience and then we get sort of a bifurcation of, of that um, and the good news is that almost every vicious circle works the other way around um, if you sort of turn it around. And actually a lot of these forces which have come together to create this fairly um, worrying and sort of urgent uh, situation, they, they all will act the other way. And the way to start going about a solution is to really understand the problem. You know, like a, a lot of the problems in diversity are actually because we prefer talking to people that are similar to us. 
um, and we tend to be wired to trust people who we believe come from similar backgrounds to us. And the more that we can have honest conversations, you know, how do we start to enjoy having conversations who have, with people who have different opinions? How do we start to love um, working with people who have a completely different background to us? And that definitely includes political opinion as well as class and all sorts of other things. Um, so the more that we're able to ask these meaty questions, the more we're able to really understand what's going on, um, the more we're able to understand that quite a big problem in the modern age is that we're trying to act against human nature. You know, realistically, we are quite clumsy, primitive creatures, and therefore we are wired to behave in quite clumsy and not particularly um, acceptable ways. Um, so we need to understand all this stuff, play it on the table, and then create a framework. And within that framework, to some extent, news doesn't need to be this huge problem. I mean, if we can find $8 trillion to spend on a COVID response, one would hope that we could find a few hundred million to create a, a few more organizations that are supported um, in more sort of charitable ways. So that doesn't have to be Jeff Bezos, or it doesn't have to be um, you know, Steve Jobs' daughter, I forget her name. Um, it, it could just be that you know, maybe it's part of taxation or maybe um maybe there is a kind of maybe instead of buying football teams you know billionaires can get a bit more creative and start creating an educational framework that leads to compassion and understanding maybe that's better than having a sports team that wins um but i think the, the we, we you've been quite hard on us i think this has all happened very quickly we had a very odd year um there are many things that are deeply worrying but there are also things that can be rescued as well yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And of course, we can fix all the problems that we have created since they are very human created problems. None yeah. of this was, was inevitable. It was all things that we chose to do. But I have, a, I have a suggestion that I want to run by you that one of my friends has suggested to deal with the fact that we have spoken about, like I think social media platforms are, are to a degree responsible for what's going on, even though it's not their fault because it's all up to us. We're the ones that have filled those platforms with content and given the food to the algorithms to drive us into our opposing teams. We are complicit in this, but there is an argument to be made like we were making at the beginning of this conversation around these platforms, perhaps having a bit too much power over our conversations just due to the network effects that they have developed and also being handed too much responsibility or being asked to take on a role they're just not naturally designed to take on. They're for-profit companies. And to expect them to decide what we are allowed to say and to whom is perhaps putting perhaps too much power into their hands on the one hand, but also putting them in an unfair position, something that a company shouldn't be able to make those sort of decisions on the, the behalf of society at large. So a friend of mine has a suggestion that we should encourage our governments to actually sponsor sort of state-owned social media networks, much in the same way the BBC was set up to sort of counter a whole lot of the challenges that we had at the sort of early days of television and radio. So with the idea, of course, being a completely nonpartisan for everyone platform, but also then funded perhaps by the by taxpayers rather than being funded by advertising and driven by algorithms. So I thought that was quite an interesting take on everything. I'm not sure I entirely agree. My, my leanings do skew very anti-authoritarian and pretty much no to government anything. But I thought it was an interesting conversation to have because it's a different way to look at these challenges. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The internet is a marvelous, wonderful place. And it's full of as many delightful things as it is full of problems. And I certainly don't see the solutions being imposing more draconian rules and making up more sort of arbitrary decisions as to who's right and who's wrong. So it is a, it's a slightly different way to look at these problems. What are your thoughts on that? Or do you have any other ideas of how we can go forward and enjoy the internet without destroying ourselves? Yeah, um, at the risk of sounding overly confident in something that sounds like I'm simplifying things too much. Um, I mean, I think it was section 420, which I think came in sort of the early 2000s, which was basically a rule that meant that anything that happened on the internet or on a platform um, was not the responsibility of the platform creator. You know, so it means that you get to buy something from Amazon Marketplace, and if it's fraudulent, you know, if it's um, a fake luxury good, then Amazon gets to just sort of shrug and say, well, we're only a platform. You know, it means if you go to an Airbnb and you get murdered, um, you know, because they didn't do due diligence on the property, it means they just go, mm, you know, we're not an accommodation provider, we're just a platform. And the way that we've let companies who, as it happens, are by profit margin, 
pretty much the most profitable companies the world has ever seen um and who have no responsibility for anything at all um i don't really understand how there's not an easy solution there because there is clearly a lot of money to be made um from having people upload their most personal content to a platform there are clearly an array of technical and human resources that can be used to help safeguard these places and i don't think it's remotely difficult and if we end up in a situation where a type of regulatory body sets a series of standards and gives these companies um, a level of responsibility that they have to show then what we will see is that you know every time you upload a video clip maybe it's allowed to be shown five times and the moment it starts being shared more than that then an algorithm scans it to have a look at what it is if it looks like it's someone going around murdering people then very quickly that's passed on to a human who then very quickly makes a decision um, you know, if it's someone doing revenge porn, then the combination of what is sparking and what AI picks up should be valuable. And I don't, I don't, I can't really see any sort of quick and um, technically difficult problems here. It gets very difficult when people are sharing news stories that are perhaps quite complex in nature and where there's a degree of misinformation. I mean, the idea of targeting, of, of tagging what is sort of fake news is extremely difficult because satire is fake news and well-intentioned people making typos is fake news. But if we come to this with the assumption that these companies are spending billions of dollars of, of money every year on R&D while actually not creating anything new, if we come to this with the knowledge that they're making 20, 30 million, a billion dollar uh, a year profits and at the moment those profits are only going up every quarter um, and they're worth sort of 500 to 800 billion dollars if we come to this with the assumption that they can probably do quite a lot about this um, I'm not too sure how that doesn't work it might not work in a way that's perfect I'm sure we'll end up with some people being upset that news stories they've shared from you know sort of center left or center right publications are are not being allowed to be shared. But I think we'd probably end up in a, in a better situation. They'd obviously have to be an editorial board. They'd obviously have to decide that these people are now media publishers. There'd have to be a process to ensure that both the left and the right wing gets their fair share of pieces, which are quite um, simplistic and are quite outrageous. Um, and I think uncomfortably coming to this from the left wing, it does appear that it's the right wing which is suffering more from the clumsiness of this approach at the moment. Um, and I think therefore now is a good time to start having these conversations. Now we've got a slightly more calm political world. Now that increasingly the tragedy of COVID um, in many parts of the world is in the rear view mirror. You know, now would be a better time to think, um, what do we do about a voice like Trump? You know, to what extent is forcing these voices into places we can't control the conversation? To what extent is that worrying? Um, to what extent do we give oxygen to conspiracy theories by ensuring that we block anything that might mention some words? Maybe the sunlight of exposure and having credible eyes looking in on this stuff is actually more helpful. But um, I might be very naive, but these things don't appear to be impossible to solve well. They're impossible to solve perfectly, but they're quite easy to solve in a way which would be far better than what we currently have. Yeah, uh, there's definitely things that we can be doing. I suppose the question really is, should the final say rest with the platform, as in the case of Twitter deciding to let Trump go, or should it rely on the government in the case of, say, the Indian government right now, which is setting, uh, basically instructing Twitter what they're allowed to share and what not? And I'm not sure which of those is the frying pan and which of those is the fire, because both of those have different sets of biases and problems, that perhaps there is something to be said around issuing perhaps a new form of license towards social media platforms that come with a set of terms and conditions of you will lose that license, that ability to allow people to post their own comments if you are proven to have a particular political bias that you are perpetuating. There are perhaps ways around it like that, but I'm not sure that 
allowing platforms full editorial discretion without any sort of recourse is necessarily going to be healthy or it will perhaps end up with a world where we have different social networks for different political leanings, a completely closed off echo chambers, which I think would be quite disastrous, just feedback loops that would become very, very extraordinary. But at the same time, allowing governments to sort of rule by law as to what can be said as and when on an ad hoc basis, when pretty much everything we are arguing about and all the conversations we're having sort of our roundabout way tonight are about gray issues. They're about issues that don't have a necessarily a definitive truth. Of course, there are some cases of misinformation, but those are pretty quickly picked up by the general community and only very, very fringe groups actually believe them. The things that are really causing deeper divisions in society are the things to which there is no correct answer things like, should we be increasing the national debt, for example? There's very different views on that. And no one is definitively right or wrong. But those are the things that seem to seem to drive very, very big problems and wedges in society. So I think the issue is very complicated. I'm not sure it's as, as simple as sort of, you know, handing, handing power to one side or the other. There's probably got to yeah. be some sort of tension between the private and public sector there. It doesn't I mean, end up being an abusive power situation. We have to remember that the way the algorithms are fed, it finds the hot topics, it finds the things that we get angry about. And therefore, both of us can come up with a list of sort of five or six deeply problematic discussions where people have extremely different and angry viewpoints about that are pretty important to the world. But there's also lots and lots of topics that people have more similar opinions on or that the consensus um, is not quite as energized. Um, or where people are more happy to accept that they have different opinions, but they don't need to carry on talking about it. Um, so we may end up in a world where the power that this sort of form of editorial body has, you know, it's not quite the most important seat in the land. Um, it simply becomes a sort of philosophy towards news that is rooted in the idea of consensus and it's rooted in the idea of healthy debate and it's rooted in the idea of sort of de-energizing um, sort of conflict. And we may end up finding out it's not quite as um, charged in all directions. You know, again, you know, there are not massively different opinions on um, pedophilia. Like there are not massively different opinions on um, the degree to which a crime is a crime or not. There are different viewpoints on to which aspects of that were more worrying than others. Um, you know, realistically, probably the good news and the bad news is that these entities are not based in one particular country, they are global, and therefore, realistically, they're going to um, have to work in different ways in different countries, and they'll have to align to some governments much more closely than others. Um, but that is the way of the world. Um, so um, I'm, I still fail to see that this leads to a very difficult situation, which is definitely as bad or worse than what we have now. I think it leads to a easy situation to make pretty good in a way where we're not worried about civil war or um, sort of rampant um, tribes of people that hate each other. And instead, I think we can be quite optimistic about an environment where people have a little bit more in common and where things are um sort of based on this idea that most people um have good intentions and you know what like as a species we're remarkably similar to each other like every person on the planet worries about things which are pretty similar you know every single person wants a degree of validation wants a degree of ego wants a lot of security likes the idea that people are listening to them likes the idea that people respect them you know, if we work around all of these core dynamics we have in common, I don't think we're destined to feel this way. Yeah, basically, how do we incentivize people to be nicer to each other rather than incentivizing yeah. us to fight? I mean, it shouldn't be yeah. that difficult. And there are there are examples. Like even coming back to the sort of Taiwan example and how they sort of hacked democracy with trying to use algorithms to find consensus rather mm -hmm. than find division. It's a very successful result. There's no reason why we can't do that. Maybe it's as simple as auditing the algorithms and make sure, sure that they are not geared towards tearing society apart. Yeah. That could be that could be a start. There's definitely many levers that we could be pulling. I, I think, though, there is there's a sort of argument to be made that government or regulators and the private sector do need to work together, but they also need to keep eyes on each other because that's how we have a healthy functioning society. Same with the media. We actually need sort of more tension between those different pillars rather than just a sense of sort of giving up kind of consensus, which was the issue we were talking about a bit earlier today, because that's mm -hmm. also a problem when everyone is 
spreading the same message and there doesn't seem to be any sort of oxygen to to sort of deviate from that consensus so not yeah. easy issues definitely got got things to look away all different ways around those those stories with but I think that's a pretty good point to wrap this up on a slightly more optimistic note because we have been dealing with some some interesting issues that are not they, they might be easy to solve but it's quite difficult to get the political and the sort of stakeholder shareholder buy-in to actually mm -hmm. do the work to fix them kind of part of that whole problem there mm -hmm. but i don't know if you have any sort of closing comments there maybe you can also tell people where to find you if they want to work with you um i i would just say that um somehow we've entered a period where being optimistic is seen to be um not reading the room you know like if you think that maybe we'll be okay um then somehow you're doing a disservice to the you know millions of people who've lost their lives recently of a variety of different conditions um so i think you know we we owe the world optimism um you know the best teams work together when there is optimism the best ideas come from people being optimistic um if you're optimistic and you're wrong after five years then you've had five years of feeling happy um before being let down if you're pessimistic for five years and then something great happens then you've wasted five years um, so I don't really see the downside to informed optimism and, you know, without going all sort of Hans Rosling on you, um, generally speaking, everything in the world is getting better um, over most periods of time. Everything is getting a lot better. And I think somehow we've become so obsessed with sort of self-flagellation and, and shining a spotlight onto every problem. We've sort of forgotten that. You know, it's wonderful how many people are taking out of poverty every day. It's wonderful how many women are entering the workplace and learning to drive and getting educated. It's wonderful how rates of illiteracy are declining. It's wonderful how there's perhaps a new vaccine for malaria. You know, there are amazing things that happen all the time. And the news's job is to report on things that are weird. You know, if the news reports on things that are not strange, then it's not the news. Um, I think somehow we've expected that the news is a mirror, where actually the, the, the news is a sort of collection of abnormality um so i'd like to be optimistic um we should also remember it's very early days you know we in prehistoric terms you know this is almost the sort of very second that fire was first created um so we should expect us to burn our fingers a few times first um and yeah if people want to get hold of me i think um i think it's tom f goodwin on linkedin or twitter but you can probably find me tom goodwin all we have is now thank you very much my pleasure